Afrita is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Thank you to SUP China and the Seneca Network team, especially co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McGronald for editing. This week, we feature Tiffany App, the China Bureau Chief for Women's Wear Daily. We get behind the dynamics of the retail industry. Why Chinese consumers are flying to Turkey to buy handbags, or why China doesn't have a big luxury house yet. We also get expert advice on what works and what doesn't work for brands expanding into China. And we set this all within the context of her path of running a new market for WWD in China. We chatted over coffee at her flexible office space in Hong Kong. So here it is. Tiffany, I am really looking forward to having you on the show today. For listeners, Tiffany is the China Bureau Chief for Women's Wear Daily, and she covers how the world of fashion, beauty, and business interact. You really are someone who I think can connect the West to China. I mean, you were born in Australia, raised in Hong Kong, educated in the U.S., and now you live and work in Beijing. If you're okay with this, I would really like you to start by telling listeners how you got to where you are now. Sure. Well, I'm so happy to have this conversation. Uh, how my career got started. Well, I studied journalism at school, and I did the Columbia Journalism Program. And soon after that, I landed a job in Hong Kong with the South China Morning Post. And in school, anybody you, you ask any of my classmates, I was always uh, the person that wanted to be more of like a. I liked fashion lifestyle. I did internships in kind of the women's glossy magazines. The job market reality, though, is when I. Got offered a job at SCMP. They said, "Hey, we don't need another lifestyle reporter. We need a business person." So that that was not something I wanted to do. But in hindsight, was a big blessing because it gave me skills that are more rare on the job market. But also, it kind of was able to merge the world. So I could talk about. I ended up covering retail alongside gaming and luxury. And retail is very different than talking about fashion. Fashion is like, oh, I like to shop, or I like the visual aesthetics of it. Retail is explaining all the mechanics, all the backstage, all you know the things that go into making you want to consume something. And so that's actually uh, ended up being way more fascinating than I could have ever imagined. So I covered retail for SCMP for about three years. And it was great, but I felt like I was not maybe learning. I knew how to do my job. At the same time, I'm female, and I was in my 20s, and I knew that uh, when people met me, they said they kind of had this reaction, saying, "Oh, you know, your name. First of all, your name is Tiffany, which somehow people in Asia think it was related to Tiffany and Company. They really do." But, you know, uh, to be a young woman with also, you know, everybody can hear how I sound. So, you know, how how you present yourself and, and what you sound like is something as well. So I didn't want people to pigeonhole me into saying, oh, she's that fashion luxury girl. She can't do real reporting, you know, when I had all the skills from from university. And um, so an opportunity came up to to work on a freelance basis uh, contract with CNN. And so I joined their team as a digital producer for two years, about two years, yep. And then I was doing uh, hard news, and that could be everything from you know 
Justin Trudeau story. Um, that's when he kind of broke out into the scene. It could be we found this rare whale off the coast of New Zealand. It could be ISIS. It could be Trump. A lot of Trump, in fact. Um, and so that gave me a lot of experience in outside my little patch of retail. It also taught me um, digital skills, which is really important, especially given that I had come from a very print background. My internships um, in school had been at print magazines. SCMP was still very much at the time focused on the newspaper, uh, the hard product. So I did that for two years. It was really, really fantastic. I learned a lot about social media and you know breaking news. I think I just really wanted to go back to a beat because I wanted to go deeper in the issues. You know, CNN was very, you know, you wrap a story, you turn to the next thing. It's a bomb in Thailand. It's, um, you know, politics in Venezuela, and they really do touch everything in their in their Hong Kong hub, which is, uh, which is you know covers everything from Australia to India. And so uh, I was very lucky that the job with WWD came up. They were looking for someone, and you know they had the right background. And I was so thrilled because you know I'd, I'd followed them since I was in school in New York. And um, yeah, so now I I was based in Hong Kong for the first year and a half or so with this job. But of course, the real action is China. And so this earlier this year, I moved up to Beijing. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned that you want to dig deeper into a specific beat. What does covering a retail beat include? What does investigative retail reporting even look like? And has any of that surprised you in the work that you have done? So I think you're asking how you kind of go deeper into retail. And so this kind of needs an understanding of how media works. So when you read a story online or in the newspaper, usually, you know, if there's a big store opening, let's say Gucci's opening a big new flagship in Hong Kong, what happens is their PR team says, hey, we need to drum up publicity. We need to get another press, invite them, and give them access to our, our CEO. We can talk about how great our business is doing, et cetera, et cetera. So those stories are real. They're really important. But if you're only doing that, you're missing the point. I think that what's more interesting than saying, oh, they're opening a store, is that maybe they're opening a store that is not just about selling things. What's really trendy right now in the industry is giving experience. So that could be maybe there's a section for pop-ups to have to add freshness and novelty into it. Maybe it's a smart fitting room mirror where it's using AR and you can, quote, try on different things. You know, if you're only doing what the PR sends you, then you're really, really missing the point. I'm really interested with what you're doing at WWD because you're so connected to Greater China. I think anecdotally, I've noticed that in everyday passing, I see people shop in the U.S. very different from the way that people shop in China. And I was hoping that with your expertise, you could add some nuance to the statement. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. I think uh, the biggest difference is just how hooked into online shopping people are in, in China. So, I mean, we're speaking now in Hong Kong. And the move for me to go to Beijing was was still quite a big learning curve because in Hong Kong, Due to certain factors, it's still it's like it's small, it's dense. There's a lot of stores around here. You can get anything you want within like 20 minutes if you walk there or take the MTR. In a country like China, which is massive, it really is. You can't really do that. So they rely on e-commerce because at the same time, labor is very cheap, and so everything really is at the touch of a button. Since I moved up there, you know, you get very lazy. You can order food delivery. Definitely is within thirty minutes, often twenty minutes. 
in a big city like Beijing, JD regularly gives you something within two or three hours. I mean, they'll promise you the next day delivery, but it'll often come like that afternoon. And JD is a big player in the e-commerce space right now. I mean, Tencent Holdings, which is the parent company of JD, also has such a stronghold on WeChat, the integrated communications platform. Is there anything that you are excited about? For example, I think you actually wrote an article recently about JD wanting to bring in more foreign imports. That was actually Alibaba. <laughs> oh, so tell me about that. Sure. Um, so I think that has to do- And the relationship between Alibaba and JD.com in this e-commerce space. Sure, we'll get to that. Um, so uh, I think this has to do with actually very top-down government initiatives. So it's part of the current five-year plan from Xi Jinping to have China move from a manufacturing base to a more consumer-led economy. And so with that, they need to promote consumption, and that often involves cross-border e-commerce. And so Alibaba is supporting that move by giving people the ability to, to do that. And so they just pledge at this new inaugural China Import X, I think, oh, something, I forget the exact acronym, but they just had this big import economy um, trying to show people that China is open to doing business. They want foreign business coming in, which is a very, you know, stark contrast to what the Trump administration was doing. And Jack Ma and Xi Jinping both were kind of poking, you know, the stance of the, the current U.S. administration. And the second part was... About the relationship. I also think people confuse the two like I just did, or they don't know what differentiates them. Are they providing different markets, different experiences, you know? Yeah, of course. So I think the two groups definitely go head-to-head in many, many areas. So Alibaba um, works on quite a different So they do Tmall, Taobao, things like that. They work on a very different business model to JD. So JD does their own. They're very proud of their end-to-end logistics, um, which say, you know, fakes have been an issue on every e-commerce platform in China. And that Alibaba has been in the news in the last few years saying, you know, they're trying to fight it. And various brands have different opinions about that. JD's uh, tact has been to say, well, we handle everything. If you're a brand that works with us, we take it from you know the transaction, we deliver it with our own logistic system. So we know how it will end up, you know, the last mile, like to the person's door. And especially if you're talking about brands, you don't have to be a luxury brand to care about how your products end up, you know, being received. So if it's, I don't know, like a pair of shoes that maybe cost a decent amount of money and the the you know delivery guy kind of rings your doorbell throws it at you or maybe doesn't even, you're not home and he just kind of leaves it at your door it's dented that's not a nice consumer experience and i think that's a lot of brands have been trying to make sure e-commerce it's a great way to reach people but you also don't want to sacrifice the brand experience mm, and do you think chinese consumers care about that or do you think there are other things Chinese consumers are caring about related to e-commerce? Oh, God, there's so many things. That's a really broad question. Um, well, do do consumers care about the brand experience? Yeah, f- absolutely. I think that that's the reason why people, uh, maybe 10 years ago, if they wanted to buy Chanel or Gucci or Dior, okay, great, let's go to Beijing, go you know down the road and, and go to their very nice Chanel store um, there. Or now people, I think, they want to fly to Paris. They want to feel the whole French atmosphere. They want to go to the Maison, you know, on what I think it maybe it's the Champs-Élysées or something like that. 
that provides a different experience for them. So it's not about acquiring product, especially when you're talking about a high-end consumer. They can have product. What they want is a story. They want to live something. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of people abroad that see Chinese consumers that way. They travel, they buy a lot of luxury goods, and then they return to China. What are the underlying reasons for that? Why do we see this as such a big phenomenon? Sure. I mean, so it comes down to simply taxes. So most products, because they are imported and there are various levies applied to them, are a lot more expensive in China. And so it just makes sense that if you happen to be going to Europe, you might as well pick something up in in France or or Italy. I've done this myself. I've made um, people FaceTime me from a Celine store to pick up a wallet for me because it was forty percent cheaper in Italy. Plus, the you get the VAT. Back, so I mean, just being a smart consumer, um, so that effect plus currency um, swing. So, for instance, uh, when Brexit happened, the pound took a beating, and so they all went there. Uh, the lira took a beating recently this summer. So, if you, you know, sometimes it's worth it to just plan trips to go buy things because you might be picking up for yourself for your auntie and your college classmates, and sometimes it's even a business. Yeah. And so do you think these taxes will ever go down? What will change these dynamics? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I don't have a crystal ball and who what the government has planned is, you know, you don't really have any idea. But the direction seems to be so, yes. Yeah. So we've seen some recent drops on, I think, beauty products, for instance. Xi Jinping this past week at the import uh, conference was saying that Again, when he says things, it's always very uh, vague, no timeline, no details, but he's saying we want to do more business with foreign uh, companies and make it easier to access. I mean, the Trump administration would say that's not true. It's It's, you know, they're not being completely honest or whatever, whatever you make about that. But the official line from the Chinese government is that that's what they want. While we're in this line of talking about government, do you think that luxury goods will be affected by some of the stirrings in trade between the U.S. and China. Yeah, I think the first round of tariffs, uh, not so much because that involved a lot, I think, of steel and machinery. Uh, this, the second round, um, I think companies like uh, Samsonite is quite exposed, in fact. Uh, suitcases and, and handbags were part of the categories that the taxes would be applied to. Um, so yes, definitely, you know, if your production base is in China and you sell mostly to a North American market, or sorry, not North, but American market, then for sure it will be hit. I think this draws upon an interesting dynamic of how things are made in China, but you're also starting to see the penetration of Western brands into China. Uh, What do you think makes Western brands successful in China? I think that they have to invest a lot of resources into being on the ground, because, I, I mean, I think, you know, in Hong Kong, people are like, oh, that's our China headquarters or Asia headquarters. Well, then I can tell already that they don't really get it because culturally, linguistically, it's different. The Internet ecosystem is very different. It changes the entire way you operate. So brands that are successful are in the market on the ground and they understand that China is a very big country, that what works in Shanghai does not necessarily work in Beijing and does not necessarily work in Chengdu. Um, And also they understand that it moves really, really fast. You can look at a white paper six months ago and and none of that necessarily really applies anymore. Um, I'll give you an example. 
Pinduoduo is now the third largest e-commerce platform in China. It is something that didn't exist three years ago. And they've been very successful combining social commerce with bulk buying, group buying. Another one is in a different industry, but luck in coffee. It's, it's positioning itself as a Starbucks challenger. It didn't exist a year ago. And it has, I think, over a thousand stores. It has a the celebrities advertising for it. It's a juggernaut now, and that is the pace of, of China because of e-commerce. Wait, so can you tell me why Pinduoduo has been so successful? Right, so Pinduoduo is a very, I would, low-end mass market platform, and the reason they did so well, it's, it's a bit like Groupon, but they took it a step further. The more you shared the deals, the cheaper it would get. And it would be shared on WeChat. And so people were doing the conversion for the platform anyway. And that's how it spread really, really fast. I think I want to add on to this. It's it's one of those things where if you've not been fully integrated into the ecosystem of payment platforms and buying and selling, it's really hard to understand why putting an e-commerce platform on WeChat is so revolutionary. It's about the ease of access and the structure and the social integration. I mean, in our pre-interview chat, the the image of the airplane that you mentioned really stuck with me. Yes, yes. So, I mean, Tencent's uh, WeChat application, which um, I mean, people think Facebook has a domination, but WeChat's a whole other situation. It It's the app you do everything on. So you pay for things on it. I mean, with that one app, you don't need anything else, in fact. Let's say you take a, a plane in China when you arrive. There's that moment when you're all waiting in the aisles to, to disembark the plane. So next time you're you're doing that, look down the aisle and look at people holding their phones. You'll see like a green screen in front of you. And it'll all be WeChat because that is how powerful and how pervasive it is. It's a messaging. It's a bit like a Facebook. You have profile. You have updates. You can post pictures. But the platform allows brands um, to create mini programs. So instead of downloading a completely separate app, you link it to your WeChat. And so my yoga studio, my bar studio, that's all done through WeChat. So you don't have to log in, log out, forget your password, whatever, you do that. Um, you wanna go to Heidi Lao Hot Pot, you go through WeChat. Everything is done through WeChat. When I, I, don't, I don't take my wallet out ever. I mean, I go for weeks in China without ever having a physical wallet on me. And that's because you just use WeChat as your wallet. Or you can use Alipay, which is the Alibaba challenger. But for me, I personally use WeChat. <laughs> me too. So there are many segments of consumers. And I know that you cover luxury markets primarily. I, with that being said, I was reading an article recently saying that China's reshaping the fashion world order. And in specific reference to New York Fashion Week, how there's an entire day dedicated to Chinese brands and designers in partnership with Tmall, which, as we mentioned, is connected to Alibaba. Do you think that China is reshaping the fashion world order from the luxury perspective? Yes. So it definitely has, and it will continue to do so. In the past and up to date, it has been mostly on a consumption side. So they are by far the most important customer for luxury brands. Um, what you see now changing is that they are also getting on the action of the creative side of being the owners, being the investors. Um, you've seen people like a uh, groups like Icicle Group, 
Shanghai-based company. I've just recently purchased a European brand, Carven. You see Shandong Ruyi, which has been manufacturing textiles. It's a, it's a textiles conglomerate. Now they're buying uh, brands. Now they're kind of fashioning themselves as an LVMH potential of China. So now I think you're seeing the conversation happening from just consumption and being the manufacturing partners to being we are the creative, the creative head of of uh, projects as well. And so I think what you're getting at is that Chinese companies are buying luxury names. Why are they buying luxury names? And second, why is there not a Chinese luxury house yet? Right. Uh, well, I think it is uh, a lot easier to buy something that is proven. And when you're specifically talking about luxury, it is very much a European arena. So if you think about American brands or even Japanese brands, there are high-end Japanese and American labels, but they're not luxury. So they're not Hermes level, they're not Chanel, they're not Dior. What you have in America, and they're very successful, is Tory Burch, Michael Kors, Tommy Hilfiger, but it just doesn't have the history. Um, I think it's also to do with just general cultural capital that you don't have. Europe has monarchy going back centuries, and that has created an environment where luxury brands could come up. So for a country like China, which went through several wars, that you know the Cultural Revolution, where a lot of that capital was taken away, it's it's very hard to to just create luxury from the ground up, and that's why you know we have wealth in China. They're going to invest it overseas to acquire something. And what's the value proposition there? Is it that European brands are more well established? Do you think? about this as a status symbol. It seems that a lot of these companies aren't in fashion themselves, so that might be the case. I mean, I think it depends on each individual case. You could argue that some people are, some billionaires are buying companies as a trophy thing, sort of like having a a football team. I think that was very popular among the rich and affluent. I think from a business point of view, the at least the idea is that if you're a luxury brand, your number one market is China. And why not have Chinese owners that have connections themselves, whether it's manufacturing or with you know property development or whatever it may be, that can then help you tap into the resources and understand the Chinese market. Whether that actually happens is a different case, but definitely there there's potentially that kind of a synergy. Hmm. So this has me thinking, because creativity is something that's really just starting to be encouraged, what would you want a Chinese luxury house to look like? What characteristics would you think it would have one day? I think a luxury house, it has to tell a story. Again, going to my previous point, if you are fabulously wealthy, you don't, you know, is there really, I mean, all the brands just like say a handbag or anything, like a pair of shoes, I mean, is a craftsmanship, yeah, it could be hand-stitched, whatever. 
Is a leather really that different quality from house to house? Probably not. I'm sure it serves you well. The functionality, the performance is not really the point. So you are buying the product because it speaks to you from an emotional point of view. It gives you connection. So that could be, I mean, that's why I think vintage works really well. You know, if you have a mother or a grandmother that passes something on to you, you know, some jewelry, it takes on that meaning so much. Like if Madonna used to, to own it, So if you buy something in Paris and you remember like, oh my gosh, I had the most amazing croissant and then I walked along the river and it was just the most beautiful day and I had drinks with my friends, it was amazing. You know, whether or not that came from the brand necessarily, that gets infused into the product you buy. And so the best luxury houses today are able to tell that story, give people an experience. And that's why the brands really court their clients with dinners and cocktails and You know, there's every Maison will have a a VIP, not just like a lounge, but like an entire floors devoted to their their best customers to make sure that they are having the best time in the world. And you think that quote unquote Chinese story touches upon what themes and essences? I know this is hard to answer, but what themes and essences do you hope are evoked? Mm-hmm. Well, definitely. I mean, it is a civilization over 5,000 years old. You just have to reach further back than maybe the last century to kind of, I guess, something really feasible on to base a brand off of. There's a number of things. I see some people doing it in cashmere. I see people doing it in silk. Obviously, that has a lot of association going back. Um, Hangzhou has like an amazing national Chinese silk museum. Wasn't it invented by the Chinese? I'm pretty sure. Yes. So um, that's definitely one area. I just wrapped a story about jade, for instance. You know, I think diamonds have become the most visible stone. And I think that has a lot to do with, well, obviously De Beers, but also because the West has had cultural capital for the last few centuries. And so, I mean, if you extend the idea that China is a rising power, that their tastes will become more globalized and will extend its soft influence, well, what is in one stone associated with with Chinese culture? Jade. So I was interviewing these um, brands yesterday saying like, well, you have De Beers for diamonds, you have Mikimoto, the Japanese company for pearls. We could be that next thing for jade and right now jade is very chinese and jade jewelry is mainly based on the value of the stone versus the design so that's a jump that they're trying to make but conceivably you know if there's going to be a luxury jade uh sorry design driven jeweler well the strength is in china so i think there's that i think there's also and this is kind of playing with with how you define luxury but i think the next very cool tech company will, or that maybe they already arrived, you know, maybe the Tencents or the Alibabas of the world. You know, Apple, I think in many ways is a luxury company. I think that the iPhone is a very luxurious product, even though it is very ubiquitous. I mean, it's better than, uh, let's say there's a company Virtu that does like phones that are bedazzled with whatever and made of like gold and I think it costs like I don't know like tens of thousands of dollars to buy a single handset like I don't think that's luxury to me I think an iPhone 10 or a Samsung S9 is much more luxurious and so I think in terms of internet innovation that'll come from China I really like that I think that 
it's an insight about how to leverage and evolve what's always been known as Chinese into something that's a luxury product. And so I think now I want to go a little bit more mid-market and talk about another observation of mine is that malls are so ubiquitous, not just in China, but in all of Asia. But when you go, for example, to the States, it just doesn't have the same allure. And I was wondering if you could maybe explain some of that. Right. Yeah. So uh, as a Hong Konger, I am always in malls and it is definitely a cultural shift where you shop in a mall, you go to dinner in a mall and it'll be like the hottest restaurant in town. You can go clubbing in a mall and come out stumbling at like 2 a.m. and the lights are on and there's like security guards there. It's just a different cultural behavior. A lot of that is to do with climate. It's quite nice to take a stroll in Milan in the summer. It's kind of a dry heat. Um, Try doing that in Bangkok, which has some of the world's best malls, I think. And Hong Kong, oh my gosh, the humidity will kill you. It's not pleasant. So I think there's a very practical consideration for, for why that is. Malls, I there's an oversupply of them in China, definitely. I think a lot of the best performing malls in China are actually from the Hong Kong developers because they have the expertise and that those companies from the get-go um, understood that a mall is not just shops. It's not just, you know, transactions. You need to provide the nice stuff, the lifestyle stuff. So it's an ice rink, it's a movie cinema, it's it could be Christmas. You know, Christmas is coming up. We've even seen Christmas trees up already, which is far too early in my opinion. But people will take their kids to the mall to see what's in their windows. And so if you provide that lifestyle aspect, it draws people into the malls, gets you the traffic, and then your tenants, the brand tenants, will then get the sale. But if you just plunk a mall down and have a bunch of shops, row after row of shops, unless you have an amazing location, it's probably not going to work. Yeah. So it's almost an attraction. How, how are retailers incorporating experience? This seems to almost go in contrast with what we were talking about, about e-commerce being big. I mean, malls are also really big. <laughs> I guess consumers and consumerism is just really big. Yeah, um, I think so. When I say e-commerce is really big, I also want to um, make clear that it's. I think the key term to know is omni-channel, which means that it's not just about being able to buy online. It's being able to buy online and, you know, return it if it doesn't fit in a brick-and-mortar store because you happen to be passing by on your way to work. It means seeing something in store and thinking about it and then realizing like, hey, I actually do want to order it and then be able to order online and have that seamlessly meet up. It's about people in the store and this is like an ideal situation, understanding like when you walk in the door, we're like, oh, we know everything about how she shops. We know that she was in New York a month ago and she bought two tops and she probably spends like X amount of dollars every transaction. She likes these kind of silhouettes. We should then push these sort of things to her. So that is, I think, the end goal of what retailers want to do with the big data and AI. But you're starting to see some link-ups where you, you know, the 
what I said earlier is where you can order online and return offline. A lot of companies still don't do that because the backend logistics of organizing that stock keeping inventory is very, very difficult. Mm, that makes sense. I, I still want to drill a little bit more into malls. Is it because the spaces are new or because brands are better at appealing to an Asian marketplace? I still just don't understand why it's such a phenomenon here compared to other places where new malls are being constructed but just don't have the same appeal. Mm -hmm. I think it has a lot to do with urbanism. I think the 50s in America kind of brought about the suburban lifestyle where you drive to work, you have the strip mall, and so you don't actually spend that much time in a mall. If you look at Asia, it, for the most part, consists of cities, which means you have less space, especially, and that is highlighted the most in Hong Kong. So the less space you have, you end up spending more time out on the streets, or what's more pleasant than being out on the streets in a mall. And so I think that's why it is, it is, it is, come up this way. Most people see going to the mall as just an activity. You know, maybe it's just window shopping. Maybe it's just, you know, hanging around, seeing, going to the food court. Because food courts are really nice. It's not like a weird Panda Express like that. I've been so many in the U.S. where it's, it's really sad. It's really fancy stuff. You have like operators like Westfield that do really amazing things. I mean, I think I was in I mean, this is more APAC now, but in Australia, like you can go to a really nice food court and spend like 25 Oz on a meal. And it's a bit strange because you're in a food court and you were in a proper, like, quote, proper sit down restaurant, but it's a really nice experience. Okay. So now that we're talking about different trends, I've been wanting to ask you this. Do you think that there is pressure on Chinese brands, Chinese manufacturers to greenify their business, become more sustainable? Is there some pressure on Chinese companies to greenify their business? Some. Not a ton. I don't think it has hit mainstream consciousness in a way that it you see in the West, which is terrible for the environment. The thing is, with the explosion of e-commerce, you have the explosion of packaging, and that's really damaging. Um, I have seen various initiatives from the big guys like JD and Alibaba to say, we're going to use different packaging, we're going to reduce packaging, that would, you know, just think about the last time you ordered something online, it came wrapped in like three different things, it has bubble wrap, it has like, maybe has styrofoam, it has like three different cardboard boxes with it, plus the carbon footprint of actually getting it to you. And right now, all of that is cheap to do in China. So I think that's a big issue. Um, There are initiatives like JD, for instance, rolled out some, like I think a fleet of 50 trucks to make sure that those deliveries were eco-friendly. At the same time, when you are growing like these guys do at 40, 50% year over year growth, you know, that's not nearly enough. And then I think the second issue with that is when you do change the packaging, a lot of companies will say it's, oh, it's biodegradable. Greenpeace just um, sent me a note saying that what they're finding is that in theory it is biodegradable, some of these materials, but that's in a lab. And so the, the conditions for which it could biodegrade don't actually exist in nature just yet. And that goes to the problem that there is no one definition of what, there's no regulator for what eco-friendly means. Like any marketer could be like, oh, this is... This is 
eco-friendly. Why? Because it was like a smidgen better than your last packaging. Well, is that improvement? I'm not really sure. So I think there's there's improving the current packaging situation. There's also addressing the kind of demand of where it's coming from. And perhaps the, the omni-channel situation would fix that. It's if you order something online, you don't really like it, maybe you can return it in store if you would like to versus having to send it back. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of things to pick out in, in that conversation. Right. It's, it's almost that there's this pressure that's being placed on the manufacturer to have the responsibility to figure it out. It, it's certainly a challenge. I think it comes to the consumer. Um, businesses care about money. And so if the money is there, if the consumer shows that they will pay or they don't want you know, something that has been badly packaged or unsustainably made, whether whatever chemical processing, they will listen. Of course they will listen if you show them you know, your wallet. And maybe it's that Celine wallet that your friend picked up for you. You mentioned earlier about this wallet, and we had an offline conversation where I got my first exposure to the term Daigo. Or I actually thought diamond bag, like daizu, what actually means replace. And go, of course, means shop. So it's like replace shop. Can you actually just explain why daigo is so big? So people talk about daigo all the time. And yeah. it's not a new thing, but this is what it looks like. So right now I'm watching a video. There's all these people with all these bags and all this stuff. Basically, they're all just sitting on the ground unwrapping these packages, but their rooms are stuffed with these people. Who are they? So this is a video I um, taken in Jeju, South Korea, which is in uh, is a place just 90 minutes from Shanghai, and it is the only place in Korea that is visa free for Chinese. So if you went to Seoul as a Chinese person, you'd have to apply for a visa and pay for that, do all the hassle. Jeju is promoting itself as a tourist destination and um, therefore attracts a lot of Chinese, genuine Chinese tourists, but also Daigo, who go over there, buy up luxury products, oftentimes beauty. So um, these people are snapping up SK2, Estee Lauder, you know, uh, Solwasu, or Mari Pacific products. They pick it up at the airport, duty-free, and they unpackage it because they want to bring it into China. And there is a 5,000 US limit on you have how much you can product you can bring, but we to declare it and pay taxes on it. So they unpackage it so that it can arguably claim that it's just theirs. They didn't buy it. It wasn't new. And then they bring it in and they sell it to people in China because there is money to be made on the margins. Okay, so one of the things I was first wondering is... Is this an actual business structure, or is this just kind of an ad hoc thing where a friend or a relative goes and buys something? Can can it be both? It they there are very elaborate, comprehensive networks of Daigos that are professionally run, but it also could just be my cousin goes to university in Sydney and he can pick up a bag for you, put in maybe it's six or seven bags. What what would you like? I mean, everybody does that, right? I mean, whether it is something you just can't get, it's stock you can't get. Like when I was a kid, I would always ask for candy from America, right? Or, I mean, let's say, let's be honest, like City Super in Hong Kong charges like what, three times the price for a certain items. So if it's non-perishable, why not get it from, you know, your auntie who's coming back from the States? Right, right. Just 
from Costco. I don't know. Like it's just the same the same principle, but on you know luxury products. And beside these luxury taxes, what else do you think will change this phenomena? Is it more accessibility, more foreign goods coming into China? So uh, you're seeing it um, being diminished from just a simple act of the government's lowering taxes. But sometimes brands have been very active in how they do this because the brands, I don't really think that this is the best idea for the business because if you buy Omari Pacific and you got it through a Daigo network, which is not an authorized reseller, Maybe it was packaged terribly. Maybe it was, maybe, you know, makeup products go off. Maybe it was an off product. Maybe it expired. And that affects their brand image and brand value. And so they frown upon that. So the biggest brand to have harmonized prices so far is Chanel, which did it three years ago. And in that, they actually repatriate the spending to each of their home markets. And it's easier because instead of all of a sudden having one country where you operate in, like have the currency fall like Turkey, and then all your Turkish maybe Chanel staff can't handle it because they don't speak Chinese. They're not prepped for this. Not unlike London or New York where they know, okay, it's a big, you know, tourist hub for Chinese travelers. We'll have some people who can speak Chinese to understand what they like. And, and then the brand is unprepared. You can't necessarily capitalize on the sales. I'm going to bet you that the sales staff in Istanbul were kind of at a loss. They didn't, they couldn't communicate. They didn't know how best to speak. I'm sure they made a lot of money, but they probably could have made more money if they were prepared, to, if they had the stock, if they had, if they knew what to sell to them. Um, so if you can harmonize prices, so what Chanel does is every quarter, they set the prices worldwide at the same price. So now, you know, over the course of three months, it could change, right? Because it's currencies or currencies. The idea is that you're pretty much getting the same price as you would get in the U.S., which makes a lot of sense. You know, I was just in Thailand last week um, with Chanel, and they were holding a, they were restaging their cruise show in Bangkok. And I said, why? And it's because the house is, um, it's now in the top 10 markets worldwide for the house, Thailand, right? So it holds its own against Europe, European countries like France or Italy. It's a really big market, except before the ties, you know, not just the Chinese that are, that are part of this phenomenon, the, the ties used to go to London or, you know, wherever they were going to pick up stock. Because, you know, people who are rich still want value. I mean, why would you pay almost double the price for something? So brands are slowly harmonizing prices. That is not as easy to do for everybody. Chanel could do that because they are they own and operate their own stores. If you are a smaller brand, like, for instance, Balmain, I had a conversation with them last year. They are trying to, you know, to take out the gray, the gray market, the parallel good traders. But... They also work with wholesalers. So if you work at a department store, you work with a really cool boutique, how are you going to try and manage that? It's it's a very different thing. Chanel, almost overnight, you know, they decide we're going to change it. We're going to move it. They can do it. Not a lot of brands can. And that's because Chanel is fully integrated, right? Yes, it is. It is. It is all their own operations, except for like fragrance beauty, which is like travel duty free. But for the fashion, it is only their operations. Um, the other thing you could do to uh, make sure the spending is in, let's say, like the quote, the right market is you do limited edition. So you might work with a superstar in China, a KOL, and you have a special handbag that's limited edition. It only is for sale in Asia or China or wherever that is. So that is a point of difference. But I think the 
I think everybody in the industry recognizes that that's kind of traversing the world and in hunt for like the best currency is not an efficient setup for either their brands or the consumer. And ideally you would just be able to get the same treatment, same service, same experience wherever you are in the world. Really interesting. These seem to be things that draw people back to their home market. I think as luxury taxes go down, as Chinese brands have more of a presence and as brands cater more to the China market, I think these three themes that you brought up, we're going to see the Daigo phenomenon fade away. And I think Daigo is more of a negative impact in the system. You know, we never really talked about the flip side. Why do you think that Western brands fail in China? What are they doing wrong? Hmm. I feel like that could be for so many reasons. I think that, and this goes for like any other new market you, you enter, whatever the culture it's in. You know, if you're talking, I mean, about apparel, there are fit issues that are a lot of issues with that. I mean, I'm thinking more of companies that have, from Asia that have gone to Western markets like Uniqlo, huge. Um, they wanted to do really well in the U.S. and opened there a few years ago. They haven't done as well as they wanted to because the size of a Japanese average person is so different to the size of the American average person. Like, I'm tall. I'm 175 cm, and I shop in Uniqlo all the time. I love their stuff. Their pants do not fit me. It is too short. I'm thinking of... Um, there's a brand called Urban Revivo in China, and it's a pretty blatant Zara copy, but it's got pretty cute stuff. I have tried to shop in there a few times, and their shoes don't go bigger than 39. In fact, most Chinese brands don't. I'm a size 40, so I always miss out. And they just opened a flagship store in London. So I actually asked my London colleagues to see, to ask them, like, do they have Western sizing? Do they cater something above a 39? That would be, I mean, it's, it would seem like it'd be obvious, but I think there's a good chance that they haven't. I'm, I'm really curious to, to know that. So, um, yeah, waiting to hear back on that. But I think fit is just a really big issue. Victoria's Secret opened up here in Hong Kong. I think that's a good example. Um, you know, I don't have numbers on how they're doing exactly in this market. I think a lot of the questions and what I would like to know is other than fit, um, just taste. You know, I think in the West, it's much more open with more revealing clothes. I think that the beauty celebrated in the West is kind of more sexiness, where um, the if you look at celebrities in China, the, the biggest ones are kind of have this like pure, innocent girl next door look. And when we sent a reporter down to the, the flagship opening here in Hong Kong Causeway Bay for Victoria's Secret, the most popular line that we heard anecdotally was the pink line, which is their cutesier line, because that would make sense with your average Hong Kong girl. Like they're not living in a society that tells them it's okay to show skin, to be really like vampy, you know. So I think it's it's cultural um, trends. Yeah. Do you think counterfeiting is a failure considered by Western brands, or do you think there's a different perception around it? Um, what do you mean by different perception around it? Uh, you know, some people say all news is good news. Maybe it's a compliment or something that can be managed. Right. A failure. 
That is, has so many layers to it. So definitely I've heard people in the industry say that at least it's, you know, it's, it's flattering. It, um, but in fact, actually like just two years ago, Jack Ma said that fakes are just as good as the real ones. And like, you know, what's a big deal sort of a thing. And that got him in a lot of trouble. And they have really backpedaled and reversed their stance as a company on that. I think that... I don't have a proper answer for that, but I would say that one thing I notice about counterfeiting is that when a brand says, we found counterfeiters, let's say it's LV, um, they say the damages are, val- the goods were valued up to like 50,000 US dollars. How they calculate that is saying one Louis Vuitton bag is 4,000 US at times X amount of bags, oh my gosh, it's like maybe maybe more, it's hundreds of thousands, a million dollars in damages. Well, actually, that bag is not worth 4,000, the fake Louis Vuitton bag is not worth 4,000 US, is it? And in fact, who it was sold to um, was was probably never gonna buy Louis Vuitton anyway, so if I think, and this is now legal things that I'm not entirely sure I understand the full extent of, but I think if you're in a, in a court of law saying that we you to prove damages, so you lost business because of this counterfeiter, I think maybe, maybe, maybe not so. Maybe it was never your customer anyway. And some people also say that they may eventually grab, graduate to forwarding the brand. Obviously, it's never okay to pass off, to rip off someone's intellectual property. But I think when people say you get these headline numbers of like how much stock and value of goods was found in this one operation that I don't think that's actually giving me the fuller picture. Okay. So now let's look at the opposite side of this question. What do you think has made Western brands successful in China? What is that magic ingredient? I mean, sometimes that is just um, uh, like a dollar amount. Like if the deals of a certain size, then it's worth covering. You know, if the markets are going to react, share prices, of course, that that's important to us. I think that a lot of companies, we get pitches saying like, oh, we're expanding in China, like we're opening our first stores. Well, that's not really that interesting because everybody's like, it's a great potential market. Well, we know that. If, if I think a company, you know, allows us access and insights into this is what really worked. Like we had like a fragrance that blew up in the Chinese market. And this is why, because it had an excellent KOL strategy or because guess what? Chinese people really like certain fragrances. Um, that That is interesting detail that other people want to know because it gives, um, you know, people who read us are other people in the industry. So they also might be, you know, wanting to recalibrate their own business saying, well, what works, but what doesn't. So the news we share and cover is always with our readership in mind saying, what do they need to know to succeed in their own business? And that's the value we provide to, to our, our base. What incredible insight, honestly. And I'm thinking about all the places that you've worked, SCMP, WWD, and I'm guessing now that you are in a field that is mostly a lot of women. And this may seem like an obvious question, but what is it like working in a woman-dominated field? I actually wouldn't say that I interface with a lot more women than men on a daily basis. And that, I think, while fashion is definitely a industry different, driven by women, in, uh, I mean, my beat covers 
textiles, manufacturing, e-commerce. It's a lot of tech. It's a lot of men, men heavy industries. Um, in Asia, I'll, because you know it's more consumption based at the moment, it's not so much creative. A lot of it still tends to be the men. You know, I'm talking to the CEO a lot more than the designer because the designers are in New York and Paris and London. So. You know, also, I think even from, if you look at, I mean, WWD previously has compiled lists of like the, the best paid CEOs in the industry, and they're actually like overwhelmingly men. Um, so, you know, I think while you might have the telliers, the seamstresses, the shoppers certainly are women. If you look on the business side of things in the C-suite, I don't think, I think there's a lot of room for improvement there. That actually comes as a surprise as someone who's not in the industry. Why do you think that is, especially in Asia? I think it's this, the, the same with why every other industry. I mean, business is business and, you know, it's always been controlled by men. Wealth has historically been held by men. So who starts the companies? The men do. And then for startups who you need money to make money, you have to appeal to men to get funding. And so, I mean, that's an issue that's, you know, been well covered, I think, in, in like VC places as well. So it's just, you know, where wealth has historically been. Do you think that sometimes results in a disconnect between the end users and those running the business? I think definitely on some level there there is an impact. I think, um, I mean, just, I mean, even like this week, we just saw, saw the news at Under Armour um, you know, on, on one hand, I think I'm pretty sure Misty Copeland, the, you know, amazing a dancer is like their face and they have a lot of pro women messages. Cause like, you know, what sports company or any company in the world doesn't have a pro women message, but here we are saying, finding out that actually now their employees can't expense strip clubs. I mean, that's pretty sad. That's really disappointing to hear, you know, as someone who has some of their products, that's not great. And so if you are not, if it's not a woman-friendly environment, I mean, I mean, I can't imagine what it'd be like to work in an office where that is condoned, that's in company policy that is reinforced by structures there. That's uncomfortable. I mean, I, I probably on some level, like unless there was very persuasive reasons for me to stay, I'd probably look to jump to another company or, you know, I would just just leave and not they're really missing out on talent I mean that's that's really well known and now what's it like for you interfacing with men in the industry while representing WWD in China has there ever been a situation where you didn't get the reception that you wanted or expected to get all the time and I think that's because um, WWD we have a history over a century it's a great fantastic company really proud to work for it but, you know, in and we have addition in Japan, so it's really well known there. But, you know, in, in greater China and, and a lot of other Asian markets, we're very new. So a lot of times people don't know, you know, don't know what WWD is, especially if they're not maybe English as a first language. I constantly feel that when I'm around fashion people, I'm not fashion enough. And, uh, you know, because I'm not dripping head to toe and like the latest designer, duds, whatever. Um, you know, that's because I'm not a KOL. Like, I'm not a blogger. I can't accept free outfits. And when I'm around business people, then I often feel like I'm not necessarily business enough. Like, maybe my my outfit even today is not... I mean, this wouldn't... Well, I have open-toe shoes anyway. I wouldn't... That wouldn't fly at a bank. So I think depending on what's on my schedule for the day, you just morph yourself. And that's the beauty of clothing and fashion and why it's really fun to cover it because 
you, it's a way of self-expression of communicating who you are and, and what you're about. You definitely talk about self-expression. Why else did you want to cover retail? Well, when I was younger, like say my high school days, I just liked looking at maybe just visually pretty things. Like I liked the photo shoots in Vogue magazine or like Bazaar. Uh, I liked shopping for clothes myself. So if you like that, I'm not saying you all need to go have a career in retail because it's very, very different. But it just kind of came from that personal experience or interest, sorry. And I was able to expand that to, to something I could do for my job. And something I see that really ties together the work that you do, though, is that you are a really big supporter of women and getting women voices out there. Actually, prior to this recording, you were telling me a story um, about a time that you weren't exactly met with the same reception. Yeah, that was um, that was not a very nice experience, in fact, because my friend, another journalist, Joanna Chu, who's amazing, put together a database, an open database of women experts. So the idea was that we could increase the visibility of, of women experts and their, their work in media coverage. And that's something I always try to watch in my own articles, because often you have a deadline, you're like, oh my gosh, who am I going to quote? Just call three people. And you might sit back and be like, oh, why why were they all men? So you try to aim for 50-50 representation. But yeah, so I looked into this database, and I think it was Rex Tillerson was on his way to China for, for a meeting and was talking about trade policy. So I looked down the list, and I found someone who judged on, basing on their description of what they did, seemed to be a good expert for that. So I sent an email, and I said, you know, explain, like, oh, we'd like to talk about the upcoming meeting. Would you be interested? And immediately, within, like, two minutes, I got a res- response and said that you definitely haven't met me because I'm the last person to talk about fashion. So... You know, I found that strange because the content of my email was, we want to talk about the politics and trade impact, et cetera. But she saw in my signature or the email address, women's wear daily. So women, okay, that's one thing. Wear, oh my gosh, fashion. Why don't want to be associated with something maybe as fluffy, even though we, are, we do, we're a business publication. Why do you think it has that connotation? What exactly? Why do you think fashion has a fluffy connotation? Because it's for women, mainly. Yeah, it's as simple as that. It's for women. So, um, so I emailed this person and I clarified, yes, we are. We do cover the fashion industry, but we cover the business of fashion. And um, we really did want to talk about the meeting. And she brushed me off in a really, really quite um, unnecessarily rude way. And I found it was interesting that she, I had found her through this list of women who apparently you know, were had the idea of we could support each other in the work that we do. Um, So I'm not sure exactly what happened there, but yeah, you know, things like that happen. And I I think that part of it is that WWD is new. And this leads me to the question, how do you want WWD to make its impact on China as well as talk about China and project China to the rest of the world? Yeah, I think the tried and true values of WWD will resonate in China and all the new markets that we go to, which is we we are known for giving objective analytical, true journalistic coverage to issues, I think, um, in fashion globally. That's very few and far between, um, especially with Instagram. If you look at what who goes to a fashion show, I mean, it's 
it, it probably used to be more journalists among the buyers and all the other people in the business. Now it's KOLs, and if you're in the pocket of brands, even if it wasn't the best show, are you going to say anything but it was amazing and the clothes are so good and they're to die for, you know? And we are never, as a company, we are never mean or cruel. We don't criticize to, for the sake of criticizing, but we we create a space for people in industry to talk about real things. Maybe something didn't go so well, but what are the lessons that could be learned from that? The real issues at stake that a lot of times, you know, brands may not want to talk about that, but it's a worthwhile conversation to have. It's newsworthy. I see it happen a lot. And even when I want to quote somebody, they say, well, I really don't want to get in trouble. Um, I work with them or like I, they just might take offense at it. And it's funny because... Well, actually, I saw an um, interview with Christina Binkley, who was the former Wall Street Journal fashion editor. And she explained it like this, like, you know, in, in tech, if there is a new iPhone coming out, you send it to the reviewers, they maybe they don't like it. They're not banned from the next iPhone review. And sadly, the, it's, it's very normal that um, when people if you say something that they don't like that crosses a line for them about the show, you easily get banned. I mean, you have a history of like Dolce Gabbana has banned so many people. Um, you know, Oscar de la Renta has gotten, I think, really upset. At, I think it was Kathy Horan, who was formerly the New York Times fashion critic. Um, you have, I mean, people get really, really upset and they will just block your access. So I think it's um, constantly negotiating the access versus you're not just going to fawn all over them because that's not what you're paid to do. And now what do you hope for yourself in the impact that you can make? I really want to do justice to this, the many stories that are in China. Um, this doesn't just go for the BI cover, but it's a country of a billion. It's a massive place just geographically. People are stationed in Beijing, Shanghai. They're just starting to put people in Shenzhen. And this is talking about the news media, foreign news media. That's still nothing, you know, when you think about how you're trying to cover the country. Like, does anyone in Shenzhen really know what's happening in Qinghai? No. Like, you don't understand what's going on culturally and locally. So I think there are really so many stories to tell. And, you know, when I look, especially in the English language, well, first of all, even in Chinese language, it's a, it's a censored media. So you're limited there. And in terms of foreign media, um, well... In English language, I think people are relying on information that doesn't capture the full nuance of anything. And a lot of, whether it's news outlets or it's a brokerage publishing a note or it's a consultancy, sometimes, you know, they're the China expert for their company, but you look at their signature and they're based in London or they're based in New York and they go fly like every few months to China to do, to kind of do it, but they're not willing to commit to living in China and being there. So I think that I wish there was more interesting information that could do justice to all the amazing things happening in China. It's moving so fast. It's growing so, so fast. Yeah. And what's it like making that commitment to being in Beijing? How has that enhanced the work that you do? Oh, I mean, that was it was such an important move for me to be based in mainland because it was a consumer mindset change that I need to understand. And I was limited by, you know, we talked about WeChat, like WeChat, the version of Hong Kong, the wallet functions were not rolled out to markets here. So I couldn't understand completely. I couldn't participate when a brand says, you can do this on the WeChat mini app. It's like, well... 
I didn't know that. I couldn't catch on. And people can explain it to you, but it's something you just have to live. So it's helped me understand really what everything I'm writing about. Yeah, I mean, I think Beijing um, or just in China in generally, it's it's a completely different place to Hong Kong. So if you really are serious about covering China, you need to be in the mainland. For sure. This has been such an engaging conversation, Tiffany. The thing is, we, as we just said, there's so many things out there. So we could continue this conversation for so long. That's so true. I would just say, I mean, if anyone is listening to this and they have ideas or stories that they want to talk about or they think maybe, you know, should get more coverage and is been neglected, then please reach out. I mean, maybe you can include my contact details in this, but I would love to hear um, other people's thoughts, other people's insights into the market. Um, There are so many stories out there to be covered. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much again. Yeah, thank you. That's everything for this time. Toffer Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser, Jason, and the rest of the team at SubChina and Seneca. Our team can be reached at ta.4.ta.china at gmail.com. You can also follow at SubChina News for updates about our episodes. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.